10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from Qatar, this is The Morning Break with Dorian Brown. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Welcome to the Friday morning break, the start to the end of your week. How has your week been? Unlike me, I hope you're still standing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Dorian Brown. It's Friday the 25th of March and we are broadcasting live from the Teachers Talk Radio Igloo. I don't think we've talked about sustainability in schools for a while, so grab yourself a palm oil-free biscuit, your favourite drink from your reusable goblet, and let's talk this out. Live from Qatar, this is The Morning Break with Dorian Brown on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good day there, one and all. I hope you do have that Friday feeling and are primed like I am for the weekend of doing absolutely nothing. Uh, The 10% notification has gone off on me and uh, I've been driving for about 10 kilometers already with the fuel light on. Uh, It feels like a never-ending term at the moment. So before that battery drains uh, and I lose all power, let us begin with the show uh, with my imaginary co-host today with her word of the week. Susie Dent gives us the word which is lalochezia. L-A-L-O-C-H-E-Z-I-A. And this is the relief of stress, anxiety, pain, frustration through swearing. So not something that uh, us TTR hosts partake in, when live, obviously. But I guess sometimes there's nothing quite like just letting it all go with a big expletive when things just aren't going right. Like fiddlesticks. Ah, there we go. I feel much better now. Um... Both of my guests today are very experienced international educators. They have been on the circuit, shall I say, for a few years uh, and will themselves have witnessed how education has changed over time and particularly how schools have changed their approach to sustainability education over time. So we will hope to tap into this experience during the show. Uh, In addition, both Alex and John have worked in schools which offer the International Baccalaureate, or more conveniently known as the IB. Uh, I'm going to assume that we will refer to the IB during the interview. Um, And now, we do have a global listenership, and I am aware that most of our listeners, however, will be tuning in from the UK and may not have taught or experienced the IB curriculum before. Um, So... My first show, incidentally, was actually uh, with Mr. Ian McHugh which nearly a year ago now, and he very concisely unpacked for us what the IB is all about. Uh, and if I were Graham, with your quick reminder, um, <laughs> I can uh, fill us in, really, and, and, and remind us that the IB uh, is an international curriculum. The mission statement is that it develops inquiring, knowledgeable and caring young people who help to create a better and more peaceful world through education that builds intercultural understanding and respect. So you can probably see that sustainability is very much uh, inferred uh, in that mission statement in itself. Um, The programme is the equivalent of, or the diploma programme certainly, is the equivalent of A-levels. Uh, to give you a quick summary of, of, of what it entails, uh, students study six subjects in the IB, three of them in greater depth, which we call higher level, and three of them at standard level. 
Now, in addition to this, they also have to cover the mandatory core components, which are TOK, or theory of knowledge, where the central question to that is, how do we know what we know? Then students have to complete an extended essay, which is effectively a research paper of about 4,000 words. Uh, and that has to be on a subject which is linked to one of their IB subjects. And then finally, there is CAS, C-A-S, which is creativity, activity and service. And these are three areas where students have to engage with a, well, engage with an, an evidence, um, self-improvement through reflection. Um, and ultimately just develop those uh, positive dispositions. Uh, so once you peel back the onion skin and you really see that there are a, a, a fair few opportunities within the programme in which to link and tie in issues of sustainability. Uh, Alex and John have both lived and breathed this programme during their careers, but um, we're going to cast the net a little bit further and also, also sort of hopefully tap into their extracurricular activities as they've both sought to bring sustainability front and centre in schools across the globe. Alex and John have been waiting patiently backstage in the green room, but to build a tad more suspense and a bit of theatre to proceedings, we're going to first hear from our two-minute tech guru, Steve Woods, with some top tips on something close to my heart, or should I say stomach, and then we will prize John and Alex away from their canopies in the studio. See you in two. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to look at technology and supporting us getting lunch. Why? Because I asked every teacher I met last week if they had lunch regularly, and most of them said no. The reason being, they're too busy most days. Now, right off the bat, I'm not going to discuss any types of diet. This is just about getting lunch. Simple ways to get calories in to power the body. As always, I've tested these things out for you and added my humble opinion. First, I'm with zero extra cost using the technology of the freezer. You can freeze a sandwich. I quite like this idea as it stopped me eating a sandwich in the car on the way to a school. If I know a sandwich is there, it calls to me. Calls to me. Calls it being frozen meant a hat to wait. The downside is making the sandwich. However, throwing 10 slices of bread down, adding filling and then into a Ziploc bag would be quite easy on a Sunday evening. You might need quite a bit of space in your freezer though. Next, I used the trusty thermos mug and noodles. I thought it was a good idea, but unlike a sandwich that you can eat on the go, I needed a fork and then had to consider not dripping it on my tie, so I actually had to stop and eat. So not as simple as a frozen sandwich, but I did have a hot lunch. Now hold on to your hats. I tried this again. I did enjoy a hot lunch, so I smashed the noodles up before I put the water in the second time around. That day, I drank my lunch. No need to find a fork, lid off, quick swig of noodles, genius. The downside I can see is washing the mug. I know I'll find it on the draining board waiting to be washed when I want to get out the door. Finally, I tried a snack bar. You can get these quite cheap online and you can find them to match most dietary needs. It was definitely the easiest option, but would be the most expensive over time. For me, it didn't feel as lunch-like, if I was being totally honest, but it did the job of rapid calorie input on the go. So, in conclusion, if you're not having lunch, why not try one of these ideas? You will definitely feel better for it. P.S. I googled International Lunch Day and it actually exists. However, it's on the 10th of March, so we've missed it. Gutted. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. Tell us what you have for your lunch. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Live from Qatar, this is The Morning Break with Dorian Brown. Thank you very much for that, Steve. Uh, I don't know about you at home, but instant noodles are my go-to for grub on the go at work. A little bit of a faff, 
but I am a bit of a instant noodle snob and will eat nothing less than the vegetable Indomie from Indonesia. Try them once, people, and you will not go back. Enough of me rabbiting and babbering. It's time to meet our guests today. Joining me to wax lyrical on all things sustainability is John Cannings, who's a freelance educational consultant and faculty member at sused.org. He's an author of books and a number of blogs on education, and in a former life, he was a geography teacher, woohoo, cast coordinator, and TOK teacher. He is also a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. Riding shotgun with him is Alex Catale, who has enjoyed a diverse 20-year career in teaching biology, and this includes teaching in the UK state system and international schools in Japan and Bahrain. She has worked as a freelance curriculum designer also in the United States uh, and has a keen interest in building a vision for a sustainable future. On top of this, I'm running out of breath here, uh, Alex is an examiner for the IB and TOK Extended Essay and IB Biology. And also, like John, she's a faculty member at SUSED as well as the co-host of the webinar series, Case Studies for Change and Shifting Minds. Thank you very much for taking time to join us on Teachers Talk Radio today. Thanks very much for the opportunity to have a chat with you, Doreen. It's a pleasure to, to meet with you again. Yeah, absolutely, John, absolutely. And, and so I gave a little brief introduction to both of you um, at the very start of the show there. Um, I wonder if you might uh, give, us, give us something a little bit more granular and give us a quick description of your journeys in education up to this point. Alex, do you want to go? Sure, sure. Um, so uh, I'm a biology teacher. I've been a biology teacher for 22 years. Um, and... I worked originally in the UK in the state system where um, I sort of cut my teeth, I suppose, in education and then moved internationally, uh, first to Japan. And um, then I moved to the States where I worked in curriculum design, um, Chicago specifically, and then Bahrain uh, and more recently in Hungary, in Budapest. Um, it wasn't really until I, I got to Bahrain, I've been teaching biology and dipping into sort of middle management and things like that for a while. But once I got to Bahrain, I started teaching also theory of knowledge, uh, which I found as an educator to be sort of transformative. And it's there I began remembering really something that I'd forgotten. And uh, that was that I'm passionate about the environment, about um, the ecology, about environmental health. And through theory of knowledge, I kind of rediscovered sustainability, um, which kind of brings me up to present day. I'm now living in the UK um, and I work for sustainability education um, and um, also do some work for the IB as an IB examiner. Wow, that sounds like a very uh, checkered path to where you actually are now, Alex, um, but also absolutely fascinating as well. And I'm sure you've had a, a kind of a, a wealth of, of, of experiences on the, on the way there. And quite interestingly, actually, we did a show um, uh, last year, it was actually with a, a chap called Ian McHugh, who's who equally kind of had the same sort of transformative experience with TOK. He kind of really did kind of, uh, it was kind of like a, an aha moment for him, I think, when it came to teaching, really did, did get hit, give him that kind of um, understanding, perhaps maybe of, of the why we teach uh, as well. So that kind of moment of clarity, if you will. I, I think so. I think it's, it's sort of a generalist subject and um, perhaps we'll revert back to more on that later on actually as we broach sustainability and systems thinking and how transformative that type of course can be. 
Absolutely. Yes. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that. And uh, John, same from contest contestant number two, please. Okay. Thank you very much for that. Um, I'm looking forward to the prize at the end of this. Um, <laughs> so my teaching career started, uh, it seems, eons ago in Australia. And um, I taught both primary and secondary school there. Um, I taught uh, social studies and geography um, there. Continued doing that in, in Europe. I also had a spell in where I wandered into physical education for a while as well. And uh, I ended up teaching uh, at an international school in Zurich for um, 20 years. My last three years of teaching were actually teaching in the Swiss national system. I taught in the bilingual gymnasium. Um, my subject area has been geography. Um, like Alex, I've, I've also been involved with TOK and uh, for a long part of my time with international teaching uh, with uh, CAS, which is part of the IB Diploma Corps, and I've been involved in curriculum development there. I suppose um, my moment on the road to Damascus, if that's a prop proper metaphor, was, was actually running a, a um, workshop uh, called Sustainability of the Futures for the IB. And um, that really made me aware of um, sustainability. I suppose it reawakened an interest I had from geography as a geography teacher about the issues and also the complexity of the issues. And um, then I got in, involved with sustainability education. Um, uh, we attended a brilliant conference that they held in, in Berlin about three or four years ago now, and was very fortunate to hear Johan Jokstrom talking about, uh, about um, sustainability and about climate change. And I guess I've since been influenced by a number of people that we've interacted with. And I think one of the things which has struck me very much is there seem to be a lot of people working at, at a base rate on trying to um, encourage schools to be more sustainable and not much connection between them. That's what I see. A lot of people doing a lot of good things, but um, they, their practice is often not being shared very much. I think that's part of the motivation, John, isn't it, for us to keep going with the webinar series is that it provides a place um, for uh, teachers, um, leaders, um, entrepreneurs in education to uh, connect and recognize there are other people that are interested in this in the world. When we very first started that, there was clearly a um, common thread of loneliness associated with teachers taking grassroots action in schools and just feeling like they were just chipping away um, so hard with such little time and then they kind of through the webinar series i think found like-minded people and that's been one of the great spin-offs from it from us and, and a good piece of learning for us as well that there are people doing amazing things and working incredibly hard that aren't in leadership positions as well um and uh, that that we've formed or started the uh, the formation of a network here a support network yeah, I think that's been one of the things which um, yeah, said sustainability education has, has probably been most successful at in terms of, of the webinars we've been running is that it has established this network and 
it, it uh, has allowed us to attract a number of people that we've had personally no contact with before. And that's been sort of very interesting. Um, for me, the most recent one was uh, a, a young lady from in Dublin who contacted me about an organization called Junk Couture, which was basically the opportunity for kids to make clothing items out of, of waste materials. And that, that contact just came completely out of the blue. And I'm sure Alex has had sort of similar contacts, which you know we haven't solicited, but which have just happened. And it's, that's one of the things which I think has been motivating and, and really interesting about what we've been doing. Absolutely, and a huge learning experience, John, because um, you know when we started this, uh, then we started the Case Studies for Change and Shifting Minds webinar series. Um, I don't think we, we didn't really know where it was going and what the outcomes would be. But I think personally, I can say that I have had such an amazing learning experience. And my eyes have been opened by people like Aurelia McNichol from the International School of Geneva, who's just done so much incredible work with um, the Sustainable Development Goals. And there's, there's three words that she affiliated with those goals that I've never been able to shake. And that's that they are transformative, that the sustainable development goals are transformative, they're indivisible, um, and they are universal. And once you start viewing the goals in that manner, you create a systems approach to problem solving and thinking that is difficult to shake, actually. And you start seeing that, that where schools are trying to say, oh, there we are doing SDG four, or there we are doing SDG seven, and it seems like such tokenism. It is great that we're talking about it. But when you think of those goals as transformative, indivisible and universal, that kind of action, you really, you, it brings to your attention that there is a huge amount of education that still needs to take place among educators as well as students. I think one of the other things, things which have been really interesting to come out of this is also um, some of the theoretical models have underpinned what we've been looking at. Um, a couple of examples that come to mind are uh, the Compass Education that, that Mike Johnson at, um, at Frankfurt International School has been involved with. And uh, he's actually running a two-day conference about change makers in education starting tomorrow, I think. Sorry, Thursday and Friday. And the other one that, that's come to mind, which for me has, uh, I think, probably had the most influence has been the the work that uh, Jennifer Bransberg's done on, on the uh, donut economics model of Kate Raworth's and how she's worked with that to interpret it at a school level and to make it a, a, a vital part of um, school uh, self-studies, which I think has been, has been brilliant. And that, that work on the donut economic model that we've learned, John, and, and circular economics, having that introduction to those sort of systems approach to dealing with the wicked problems that we face has for, for, definitely transformed the teaching that I was doing when I was in the classroom and also the work that I continue to do now where we're reaching beyond the subject silo of biology of my area of expertise with other teachers in their specialisms in their silos and we're saying right how can we design something that is rooted in the assessment objectives for our curriculum but also can extend from your subject to my subject that can also 
embrace the wealth of learning experiences and professional certifications that students could get in the online world as well. So we're looking at sort of devising hybrid theoretical, so at the moment it's very theoretical, but theoretical framework that embraces um, sort of hybrid, um, tailored, individualized learning with traditional learning objectives. So we're fulfilling, of course, our course requirements, but going beyond that in terms of learning, putting multiple shoes on to look at those objectives with. But that again requires thinking time and headspace, something that is in very short supply, um, to be honest with you. Well, you both have absolutely sort of bowled me over in those first kind of five, six minutes, really, to be honest, because I've, I haven't stopped scribbling um, so much to unpack uh, in, in all of those uh, things that you've just said. And it just sounds, I think what that is indicative of really is actually just firstly, both of yours passion uh, in getting sort of the, in raising the the profile and importance and, and, and embedding sustainability into schools at, at every, every opportunity almost, uh, but also how knowledgeable and uh, experienced that you are in doing so. And I think your your international experience um potentially you might you might say different but has perhaps maybe given you an advantage in the way that you're able to see things work in different contexts and different places um i i think the the organizations that i've spoken to uh, Ministry of Eco, Aim High Earth, we've got Friends of the Earth coming on as well. Um, they're all sort of UK-based, um, and I want to echo almost what you're saying in the, in the way that uh, there seem to be multiple, um, multiple ways of, of, of bringing sustainability into the classroom, but not a silver bullet there isn't a, a bit because that feedback loop of when you actually implement something it, there's there's a large delay and it makes it very difficult to actually measure the the impact of what you're actually bringing into that particular place and i think alex as you said towards the end there that there is definitely the 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 requirement the need for there to be these things to be adapted to context cultures places fitting into school models etc as well so um yeah um awesome amount of uh, things that we've we've um just just kind of tipped tip the iceberg with at the very beginning there um let me just try and just roll it back a little bit because i'm sure what we'll do is um we'll kind of uh, sort of strip away a little bit a few of those points that have been mentioned um uh, later on let me just bring you right the way back actually because just before we do we do go on um Fun fact, perhaps, maybe I've, I like to sort of do a bit of stalking and find out a little bit of interesting information about the guests. Um, and I believe, Alex, you have a master's in science and sustainable development. Um, so I just wondered if you'd be able to describe uh, why you decided to do that, maybe at what point as well and, and, and what it actually entailed. Well, that is um, quite a complex um, <laughs> question to respond to for lots of reasons. And the first reason is that I did that master's degree in sustainability in 1997. And I would say that was really before, I certainly felt that that was before sustainability was even close to mainstream, which I don't think it is now, but you know what I mean. You know, it was, it was a, um, it was viewed with great suspicion, I would say, actually. Right. Um, I'd as I started to wrap up my degree, I was looking at areas of interest. I was thinking about what I would like to do. And I think when I reflected on my degree, I had certainly biased my learning and my pathway towards things like mycology, ecology, 
um, environmental toxicology R really so I went from a pure biology course really more to an awards and environmental biology course is, is really what I ended up doing and I got to the end of it and I thought well what don't I know um, which was of course an awful lot um, but when I started to dig deeper what I wanted to know more about was how we can utilize biological systems in our own development because it struck me, I suppose, even then, that the only way to produce a sustainable world would be to look to ecology to do it. Because ecology is, and actually biological systems generally, whether you're with, we're looking at the uh, reaction level inside of cells or whether we're looking at the holistic level of whole ecological systems and how dynamic they are and responsive they are to the natural environment and changes and fluctuations within the environment. Um, we have a lot to learn. Now that has a name today, and that name is biomimicry and biomimetics. You know, there's there's a whole field of study and an industry that's being built around that. But that's what I was originally interested in. I thought, where can I find out that more about that? And it was in sustainability. It was looking actually more specifically at agriculture and how we may be able to produce agricultural systems that can both feed the world but also be less damaging to our environments. And that was the area I focused on in my master's degree with a specific focus on something called short rotation coppice, which was looking at the use of coppice woodlands and sustainable use of those woodlands um, and whether that was a viable option to integrate into our future. So that, that was sort of the backstory. Um, but then sort of I ended up working in all sorts of different things for a while and following that master's degree. And I decided to go into education and I didn't look back actually. And I, I kind of forgot about that passion. That was what I was alluding to right at the beginning. I forgot about all of that passion, all of that energy. And um, until uh, I would say I was on the international circuit, um, started when I started traveling from, from Japan to different places and started looking at the state of the world actually. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then on into the Middle East and it really hit me um, like a sledgehammer that the world is in a terrible state it doesn't matter we can try and dress it up if we want it's it's pretty awful the amount of trash the um, we've got some huge wicked problems to try to build solutions to, towards solving um, and that's where I sort of got reignited with that interest in sustainability yeah, right. And, and and that kind of links back to what I said about that idea about you building that passion as a result of the experiential aspect of, it, of actually seeing and, and breathing um, and, and living in areas where perhaps maybe like there's, there's lots of waste, you know, energy consumption. Mm. Absolutely. And I, as I traveled, I remember thinking to myself and probably saying it out loud to my husband and kids, it's like, why doesn't someone do something about all this mess? You know, yeah. and what a, what a silly thing to say. Like, why doesn't, so, and, and I, I think my husband may have pointed out um, very politely that, well, you're the one with the master's degree in sustainability. Um, and I was like, oh, so you're saying I am someone and therefore can do something. And I think that's where it, it sort of, um, yes, start, I started. I do something, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and, and again, that's another, of all the teachers that I speak to, uh, you know, it's just fascinating to hear about that kind of route to, to where they get now, because no, no two are the same, you know, and, and, and I love that idea that 
the your experiences and that you had something inside you that kind of was dormant for a bit and it took kind of a couple of a couple of triggers if you like to kind of bring it bring that back to the surface and just really does illustrate I think the power almost of experience and, and, and education um uh, yeah I, I couldn't agree more actually I, I think the real tipping point for me from Japan was um I used to scuba dive a lot you know and all through Micronesia and places like that um, which was very lucky, fortunate, and amazing scuba diving with huge, rich biodiversity of life. And I was diving uh, near Guam. Um, if you don't know where that is, that's totally understandable. Um, it, uh, American territory, sort of just north of, of Micronesia. And the, th that area has incredible uh, biodiversity. Then one, one year I had been diving and about six months later, I went back and dived again. And I looked down and I, I remember my dive buddy, also my husband, we came up and I said, what's with the coral reef? You know, and the whole thing had bleached and it was like looking at a skeleton really underwater, still alive, but just ticking along. And that's where I think once again, I revisited sustainability. So why is the coral reef bleaching? What's going on? And how's it happened so quickly? I think that's what really threw me that yeah. changes on a large scale yeah. happen so fast. And that's not necessarily stuff that you can visually see. Well, I mean, you can see a photograph and you can see news reports, etc. But when you actually experience it, when you're actually there and you see it, and you and and it's happened in such a short space of time, that when it that that really does illustrate the fragility, I think, of the of, of the ecosystems, and and can only serve as it sounds to have done to motivate you even more to to to, to do something about it. So that's that's wonderful to hear that. Thank you for that, Alex. Um, John, your I guess your fun fact or the thing that I wanted to hear a little bit more on you on is probably actually linked to what Alex said as well. Um. We, we we actually met uh, when I was working in in Jakarta, and you came in and 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 uh, uh, facilitated our sort of discussion and and gave us your expertise about working uh, in the core. So looking at CAS and looking at TOK, etc. Um, I just wonder uh, because you've you've been such an advocate of sustainability, uh, and obviously as you detailed of your of your career thus far. Uh, how uh, you've worked sort of freelance over the last sort of twenty years for the IB as well. How do you feel that? The, the the global philosophy or the global approach to sustainability and education has kind of changed in that in in time. I realise as I've just answered asked that question that that's also quite a, a meaty uh, uh, question as well. But in your experience, how's you know uh, I think from what what I'm trying to say is that it's sort of in Alex's experience of what sustainability uh, her masters evolved, involved um, is very different to perhaps maybe what sustain um, a masters in sustainability might look like now. So how, how do you feel that sustainability approaches and uh, philosophies of, 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 uh, of learning about sustainability has changed in your, in, over your career? Um, I think as one of the things which I've, I've noticed is there's a gradually more greater acceptance of the need for sustainability. I worked with someone in Zurich who was a keen advocate and came up with a number of really creative suggestions about how a school could be more sustainable, but unfortunately they were largely ignored, um, which was, was sad. Um, what I've noticed, and what, one of the things which surprised me was, was going back to Australia about three years ago and realising again how much of almost an underground network there is of sustainability. There's a, a site which you may have heard of called Cool, cool Australia, 
and they've produced some fantastic teaching materials. But when you actually look at the different states curricula on, on uh, particularly for geography and biology, um, they've been very selective and it's been a bit silo-like and they had the opportunity to do much more than they've done. So what I see is that, that it, um, and this is just a very superficial observation, that in some of the state curricula, there's quite a, at, at primary level, there seems to be quite a strong acceptance of it, but at secondary level, it's a bit more hit and miss. And I, I find that disappointing. Um, the other thing which I would say is this, that Alex, when she was talking, I thought was talking, she talked very much about some of the physical aspects of sustainability, but I think equally interesting has been some of the human aspects of sustainability, and particularly um, about a, a growing interest, for example, in things like business and economics with sustainability. And I see that as, as being a, a trend which is emerging, particularly where courses are run on um, um, business studies, for want of a better term, there's a much more concern about the ethics of a business being sustainable compared to what it was a while ago. And I see that as quite a change. Um, Alex was also talking earlier on about an experience that she had. Well, I had one about just after I'd done this course in sustainability in Australia. And I went there at a time when Eastern Australia particularly was experiencing one of its worst droughts. And yet um, a government which was denying that there was any possible change in, in uh, climate. And I, I was quite angered by that. I was actually uh, attended a couple of the uh, student demonstrations in Australia about climate change. I was uh, and quite impressed with the kids' understanding of, of issues that I spoke to, and also their, their feelings about what was actually happening. And um, following my visit, there was, was actually, as you perhaps know, some of the worst bushfires that Australia's ever experienced. And it's clear that, that there's quite dramatic change um, in climate affecting Australia at the moment, both with when they had bushfires and now with the alternate part of uh, El Nino, um, of course, floods. Yeah, fantastic. And and yeah, it's it's a carbon copy, isn't it? Of, of exactly what Alex said, you know, a, 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 a series of events or events that are very close to one's heart and mind and, and, and whatever, and, and, and that kind of really driving a, a, a desire to, to, to address that one way or another. Um, you know, uh, one thing you mentioned, Dorian, was I, I think you mentioned was um, how would and, and John's just just reminded me of this. How would um, a course perhaps today be different from a course that I did in 97, for example? And um, I think one thing that was clearly missing from a course in 97 was a focus on the generalist over the specialist, the systems thinker. Um, I think systems thinking and sort of design-based thinking uh, has become much more centre-placed um, in sustainability. Yeah. And I think it, it highlights that 
actually, Rachel Mousson from Thoughtbox UK said, I was reading an article she wrote um, about a week ago, and she was saying, you have to think like, think like a hawk, she said. So you, you have the global view, the hawk's eye view, the big picture, but when you see something that you need to focus on, you narrow down to that thing and you look at it in fine detail. And that's where the specialists come in. And I think that's what TOK does for education when done well, is it enables you to think more globally. You slip on those pair of shoes from those different silos and you view the world through those eyes. And then you come back out and say, well, what does that mean for the knowledge that we have? You know, um, and so I, I think systems thinking is a big change in education, um, but not school-based education. Oh, fantastic. And that sounds like a show all in itself as well, actually. So I might have to, <laughs> we might have to tap, uh, I'll tap you up and uh, see if we can get you back on to all that. Because I think that's super interesting because we've got, um, I was reading James Clear's book on Atomic Habits recently and it, it dawned on, it, there's a section in the beginning where he's he talks about, you know, we're very focused on goals and yet actually the, that we should put more effort on process rather than goals, right? So it's that the systems that we've got in place to help us achieve our goals are more important than actually the goals themselves. Um, so yeah, it'd be nice to, to, to hear a little bit more about that, um, particularly outside of the school context as well. Um, I think sort of as uh, as has been said, really, that uh, yeah, there has been obviously it's been transformational the last twenty. I remember when you said back in ninety seven, that was twenty five years ago. It feels like twenty five years ago, does it? Ouch! <laughs> I know, right? Um, but um, but I, I have this sort of strong feeling that there there it has been transformational. Sustainability it is no longer something which is kind of viewed, um, you know, as oh yeah, we will get round to doing something like that one day. I think the world is more aware. Um, transnational corporations are being called out more often um, governments are being held more to account you know there's more of a social switch in in terms of approaches um, and I think that that's come from from adults all right but I think that if we wind forward the clock hopefully you know 10 15 20 years that the actions that adults are taking now are obviously going to permeate and and be built upon by by, by the children um, uh, that follow um, Listen, we're, we're sort of halfway into the show. We've covered an awful lot, um, but I do want to kind of um, jet back to a couple of things as well. Uh, we're going to have a quick news break to start with, um, and then we'll hear some more in about two minutes. So we'll be back in a sec. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. Research, which was carried out by the National Day Nurseries Association, has found that 95% of nurseries in England don't have enough to cover basic costs, following the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Nursery finances will face further squeeze in April as a result of soaring heating and electricity bills, a further 6.6% rise in the national living wage and a 1.25% rise in national insurance. Emma White, owner of two private nurseries in Suffolk said, most of our staff are on minimum wage or above, and these payment increases are so well deserved. They have worked all the way through COVID. What makes it difficult for us is that they are not being mirrored in the amount the government gives us and they are expecting nurseries to take the hit personally when there is very little left to pay themselves. 
We have had to keep doors and windows open in the nursery for ventilation because of COVID, which means the heating has to be kept on. Within months, our heating bill has gone up by a third and will go up again in April. A government spokesperson said, the early years of a child's life are the most crucial, which is why we have invested more than £3.5 billion in each of the last three years to deliver the free childcare offers, including the 30 hours a week for working parents. John Beattie, former Scotland rugby star, has slated Scottish teaching unions for being responsible for Scotland not being better at rugby than other parts of the UK. He said, we are a small rugby playing country. Teacher strikes in the 70s and 80s, I think killed off much sport in schools in Scotland. His comments followed six Scotland team players being disciplined for a post-match trip to an Edinburgh pub after their Six Nations victory over Italy in Rome on March the 12th. John Beattie's comments have prompted a healthy debate about the direction Scottish rugby should take and come despite the last teacher strikes in Scotland being in 1985 to 86 in protest at pay and cuts by the Tory government under Margaret Thatcher. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. Live from Qatar, this is The Morning Break with Dorian Brown on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. And welcome back to the Friday morning break. I'm Dorian Brown and you join me in the studio here with Alex and John. A fantastic first section where I think, you know, it dawned on me that I'm, I'm giving an hour's worth of, of uh, airtime to a subject which probably we wouldn't be able to even scratch the surface on. Um, and, and John and Alex have both demonstrated, even in that short bit at the beginning, how knowledgeable, how experienced and how passionate they are about bringing sustainability uh, to the forefront and rightly so to front and centre. And that's something that I also obviously, uh, that aligns with me as well. Um, so... Um, what I'd like to do then, uh, folks, if that's okay, is I'd like to sort of pick your brains a little bit further to see how uh, how you feel, um, you know, Teachers Talk Radio, we've got lots of uh, teachers and leaders from the UK and the rest of the world um, tuning in. Um, we really like to think about how teachers and leaders can contribute to shaping um, sustainability in education. Um, so... I believe that you both, I'll need some more information on this. Are you, the reason I've got you both on at the same time of the show today is that you both work with sustainability education. Um, so I wonder if we could have, if our listeners could hear a little bit more about sustainability education and perhaps how it can be used as an agent of, of change or a support, um, a support network, if you like, to, to, to push forward sustainability in schools. Okay, well, let me talk, try and give a, a very potted and quick history about sustainability at 
Um, brainchilds of, I, I think of uh, three Cambridge graduates. And um, what they decided to do was uh, to raise interest in, in the issue of sustainability by holding um, conferences at a number of schools. Now they've held conferences in, to my knowledge, in South Africa, in Singapore, in Scotland, Germany, and also in Jerusalem. And uh, at the conference, what they've insisted is that the director of the school comes, education after all is very top down, let's be honest. Um, the finance director is there, uh, they also asked for a champion teacher to be there. And they've also encouraged students to be there. And they've used um, Otto Sharma's U-shaped model as a, a framework for, for um, looking at the disruption of ideas. Then they've had presentations, particularly from the sustainability uh, group um, from Cambridge. Um, the one I attended myself in in uh, Frank uh, in Berlin actually had, as I said to you earlier on, Johan Jokström as one of the key speakers, and they also had some economists. And the idea was that from each of these conferences, that the schools would go back and start working on sustainability. Now. What our experience has been, I think, uh, Alex and, and mine, is that, that often there hasn't been a, a lot of follow-up to that. And so we decided that one of the things that, that we should do was to hold a series of webinars specifically to showcase the people who were promoting sustainability practically in schools and also some people who've been operating outside of schools um, at systemic levels particularly, okay? Um, and that's been one of the aims, long-term aim of SASED was to actually establish a school. Now, that hasn't happened to date, okay. but um, that's what SASED's been about. And um, we've, done our best to reconnect with the net, some of the networks that have been established by SASED and also to try and do our best to sustain the connections and also to, as I said, to provide um, a forum for, for people to explain their approaches and ideas to things. And uh, I, as Alex has indicated earlier on, that's been uh, a very rich experience for us personally. Um, we've both learned a lot, I think, from it. Uh, but also, I think it, it's been uh, transformative from a lot of the participants we have. And I should say that we've had normally about 40 to 50 participants. And the participants haven't only been teachers and academics, but we've actually had some secondary students involved. And one of the earlier webinars we had this year was exclusively with three uh, secondary students, high school students, talking about their experiences of um, shift, their minds being shifted. Short version, Case Studies for Change was grassroots action, teachers showcasing the work that they've uh, been doing. And that was 
I think, very inspirational for us um, and provided us and our participants with huge food for thought um, and certainly resulted in some action. We've, we've talked to participants about the action that they've taken and perhaps more on that later. Um, then for this next series, we were thinking, well, how do we move forward with this? And we decided that we wanted to work out how we go, how action can be scaled within a school, particularly given there was a common theme and the common theme that we learned through the case studies for change is that the action is grassroots and it's taking a huge amount of grit and resilience to convince others within an establishment to join the party, basically. So from the position of teacher, how do you, how do you scale this up? You know, what, what do you need to do in order to convince others? And I think I remember Jennifer Brandsberg Engelman saying the most important thing, that a piece of advice that she could give was going where the energy is and leave the resistance alone. Mm -hmm. um, you know, being drawn to those that are already interested and igniting their passions within an establishment. That reminds me very clearly of the, uh, the innovation, the three train cart uh, uh, analogy, isn't it? Where you've got those that are in that first carriage of the innovators and the ones that got it and they know everything and they're good to go. The middle carriage of the people that have the will, but maybe not the way. And then the last carriage of the people that don't like to see change and they've seen it all before and, and, and whatnot. And you have to focus all of that energy, not in the resisting, not in the third one, but in that middle one so that you can enable those. And then as soon as people in that middle cart start um, moving into the first cart, then you get the people in the third cart going, oh, what's, you know, what's going on there? So Absolutely. I, I think one of the things that we've discussed as well, haven't we, John, is that you know, if, if sustainability is going to look different in, in every school, in every country, you know, there's going to be, it's going to be, there's no precedent set for this. No. You know, we're trying to build systems thinkers and schools that can walk their talk. That's, I suppose, what motivates us most is that wouldn't that be incredible? Wouldn't that be an incredible thing to see? And I know there are some schools that are working towards that. Um, but at the same time, if we want this to really genuinely sort of for sustainability to be in genuinely authentically embraced by schools then perhaps that change has to happen at curriculum level at policy level at inspection level yes. you know um and and then you know the, the option there isn't then for leadership buy-in because it's a must mm. then it's about educating the school community to come on board and seeing how we can embrace these changes yeah, lovely. Like a multimodal approach to, to kind Absolutely. of going, yes. Yeah, it's interesting, Dorian, that I mean, uh, uh, looking at the UK, that, that both the Welsh and Scottish governments have really seemed to have embraced um, the idea of sustainability and included it in a systemic way, whereas the English government's still trying to come to terms with what it should actually do. It's, it's produced a beautiful policy document but um, it's a long way behind the other two regional governments or provincial governments, I should say, in, in actually in the, in the ideas it has in actually implementing things. 
Mm. Yes, I know the, the 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 UK draft strategy on sustainability and climate change is is due to come out actually form formally in about two three weeks I think and uh, yeah I think one of the the vision is for by twenty thirty for them to be sort of world leaders in sustainability education and uh, I said actually only in the show last week actually that that's quite an ambitious uh, target considering it's actually you know it's twenty twenty two now you know everybody thinks this twenty thirty is you know we've got loads of time but I mean as with the SDGs you know it's literally you know eight years and that's that's going to fly by um so interesting yeah I, I i i'm getting a sense of that yeah you, there's this agreement that not one size fits all absolutely uh, but there's a they, there has to be uh input from multiple levels and and uh, there has to be this kind of this collective drive collective push you know i think we found in the past that individuals on their own they struggle to kind of make significant change yeah they might kind of change things briefly or, or turn a few um heads uh, but actually it has to be that kind of that that inside doesn't it which you know everybody's inside has to has to change that mind 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 shift if you will um but one of the problems i think that come with that and maybe you can come back to me on that is that is, is our is our ability to actually measure um progress and that ability to actually measure that what we are doing is actually having the desired impact well, I think that's a, a great challenge. Um, as you know, I said I was involved with experiential education and creativity, activity and service. And um, one of the things that, that often comes up with in workshops is, is how can we tell if the kids have really gained anything? Or has it been transformative? And the answer is we can't because quite often what we see we come across anecdotally um, people that it has affected, but they haven't realised that it's affected them to sometimes later in life. Mm. And, uh, you know, Jen, um, Alex was talking about uh, TOK, and I, I think that's another example of something which is transformative, but it takes a while, perhaps like us, to realise um, the benefit it's actually brought us and to, to make us aware of, of thinking and acting in a, a more critical and ethical way. I think yeah. there are ways, I mean, I suppose my, my knee-jerk emotive response is I think we measure enough. Um, but the, I, I think there are other ways that we could view measurements, I suppose, as looking at community impact, social impact within our local community, certainly as international schools. We have a, do we have a duty to support the host country communities that we're in? And there may be ways there to measure impact. Perhaps we could look at um, student university course selection and see if there's a transfer. Uh, anecdotally, I have noted um, a, a, a change in courses that students are electing for over time, moving more towards at least integration of sustainability into the courses that they want to do, particularly in places like the Netherlands. Um, perhaps we could be really radical and measure um, car carbon output and water usage within an establishment as a whole as a systems-based approach to measuring schools' uh, place and yeah. sustainability uh, transformation. 
Absolutely. I, I, I agree with your knee jerk in saying like we measure enough, but I think at the same time, you know, if, we're, if we've got five strategies, surely we, you know, we'd like to know which one is more effective or, or whatever as well at the same time. So yeah, there's a kind of, again, it's a bit of a, uh, a rocky road, isn't it? In terms of what we measure and how we measure it and then how, and how, what inferences we make from, from the, the, the data, whether it be qualitative or quantitative uh, from that. Um, absolutely fascinating. And I, and I, uh, I wholeheartedly, um, support the, the the notion that this is challenging for, for, for any school to kind of um, change what they're already doing, if you like, and, and, and mobilize um, people that are already, John, John, John was, and I were talking before about how busy schools actually already are. And it just, you know, to make these things happen, you know, it, it will involve potentially more work um, initially, but weaving it into the curriculum and weaving it into the kind of the day-to-day -day and making that language of sustainability ubiquitous across the school at as young an age as possible as, as, as possible are ways that we can make, the, we can ease the, 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 the load on that. For sure, I, I think, sorry, John. Yeah, I just want to jump in there. I think one of the key things that's really important about this We've, I mentioned earlier on about education being very top down. And I think one of the things that has to be um, for, for sustainability to be considered effectively is buy-in from school governance, particularly. Mm. Um, because basically school governance and the CEO or head of the school uh, have the ability to influence a lot of the actions the school makes, particularly if you look at their uh, supply chains and schools use an awful lot of resources and materials and to think about how that's being sourced and why it's being sourced and the other thing which i think is is also very important about governments is that um, it also has to if sustainability is really going to work in, in schools and the places where it has um, there's been a clear buy-in by the governments to actually support this we had a very good example from uh, uh, one of the Scottish schools, uh, I think it was Heriot School, uh, where they have a very vibrant and dynamic uh, sustainability group. And part of that group, which is involved in decision-making, are board members, along with students and also members of staff. And I think that's something which is, is really important, as well as the curricular side of things, is to have that support and recognition from the school leadership. Um, certainly when you look at models of, from business of sustainability being introduced into companies, it doesn't, it's not really effective unless the CEOs and key managers in the organisation are actually involved and actively support what's going on. Yeah, that's a salient point, I think, there, John, because the, the NGA um, have launched just the, the last year their Greener Governance Pledge, you know, which means that, you know, sustainability is first item on agendas, and there's a more of a financial commitment uh, made by government, so I think, by, by, by govern, governing boards. Um, so it certainly is, 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 is out there, and they are seen as the sort of enablers, and it's a very difficult, it's a very, again, it's a kind of a very difficult road to, to, to travel because, you know, often sustainability i'm not saying all the time but often sustainable changes in the sustainable in, in sustainability cost um and when budgets are done over one year 
for example, it's very difficult to implement a, sus a sustainability system, if you like, or, or that you know, is going to see benefits in five years or 10 years time. So that is what I think one challenge that many schools are, are faced with when trying to kind of, when governing boards are trying to support them through this. And, and I Alex, think, sorry, Alex. No, I was just going to something that Alex said earlier on, which I think is very important, is that, um, that the governing boards particularly have to be very much in tune with vision and thinking about where the schools are actually going. And I think a lot going along with this is the accreditation system which we see in schools. And at the moment, um, sustainability is not a strong point in those accreditation schemes. And I think for schools to react more strongly, there needs to be, uh, as they've been with the national systems in Wales and Scotland, clear uh, um, recognition that there's uh, in the accreditation process that sustainability is important. No, absolutely. And I think that comes back to what I was going to say as well, John, um, a moment ago, it sort of feeds into it that you've sort of said that really that there has to be representatives from all of the stakeholders within the community. And this is a community activity. There's a bit of carrot and stick here, isn't there, with the policy and the um, accreditation requirements and then transparency so we understand the context for decision making and um, sort of to remove the opaque screen if you like that can sometimes shroud decision making and have the students and teachers and representatives from the community involved and clearly disseminating the information so everybody's on the same page the same language um, and understands what what we mean when we say sustainability and what that looks like and feels like in that community. And that, that really has to require a whole school approach, not, not really a hierarchical one as such. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, folks, it's, it's, this is absolutely, I'm absorbed in, in, in what I'm hearing. And I'm, as I said, I'm scribbling, I'm learning an awful, awful amount. I'm conscious of the time as well that we are kind of hurtling towards the end of the show. We are gonna go to a quick, ad break uh, and then uh, I've got a couple of questions just to finish off with if you wouldn't mind uh, so we'll be back in a couple of minutes this episode of teachers talk radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack group the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care they're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. Introducing Bulb. 
With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb Digital Portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. Introducing Autism Aspirational Futures, a virtual SEN conference for parents and carers. Do you work with parents or carers of students with autism? If so, this free virtual conference from Witherslack Group can support them and you. Providing inspiring talks from leading experts, offering practical advice on supporting children and young people with autism and associated needs. This very special event will take place during Autism Acceptance Week and is sure to be an enjoyable occasion for everyone wanting to develop their knowledge, understanding and celebrate their children's amazing superpowers. Don't miss out! Register for free at witherslackgroup.co.uk today. Witherslack Group, the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs. Live from Qatar, this is The Morning Break with Dorian Brown. Welcome back to the Friday Morning Break. Got myself, Dorian Brown, and you've got John and Alex here in the studio. Um, we have been covering an awful lot in a, in a very short amount of time. Uh, almost, I was thinking in the break there that every point that that has been made is a, almost a show in itself, and we just we, we could just dig a lot deeper in these things and find out a lot more. And and maybe I might be able to persuade uh, both John and Alex to, to to come on again and maybe look at one aspect, perhaps maybe a little bit more granular in the future, because I really do feel feel that. You know, uh, you know what we're doing now. This the, the sort of offering a platform for for teachers and leaders around the country and around the, the the rest of the world, just giving them some tidbits and ideas of of how to get conversations started, how to engage communities, how to in, ensure that sustainability is woven in as early as possible into curricula, uh, and it is a it is a central focus as it as it rightly should be. So, in that vein, then if I can if we can just kind of come you know bring the show to a close really with a couple of I guess. A tips from you both really about what sort of advice you would give to, to let's say we, we have a school leader listening now who is keen to take their next steps in weaving sustainability into their curriculum um, uh, uh, acknowledging that every school uh, and trust is a very uh, probably a very different stage as well um, but what what would you say would be some general advice to to, to, to leaders looking to put their the you know go along that next step towards sustainability um, if I can, I can just start with a few, a few um, points. I suppose I've noticed from our webinar series and, and participants within the series as well, and that's that the um, we're, we're really back to go, going where the energy is, and so finding the expertise within the school and, and listening carefully to that expertise, and um, identifying and supporting staff, empowering staff, if you like, to empower others to um connect and find that energy provide the space and that's the biggest challenge i suppose it doesn't have to be a huge amount of space even if it's just informal space for conversations to ignite um, we have some participants in the webinar series that have a change maker program that connects year one through year six through year 12 and that's 
been purely through informal conversation um, and a huge amount of groundwork by the teachers themselves. And um, wouldn't it be incredible if those people were recognized for those actions and supported, strongly supported to develop those programs so they're really normalized within the system? Amen. <laughs> Agree. John, any, any uh, strategies yourself? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that one of the key ones there, which maybe I'm saying the same thing as Alex, is, is uh, facilitating situational leadership. So in other words, identifying the key people that, that have energy in this region and giving them time and resources to actually do things. I think that's something that's very important. Mm -hmm. and, and deciding, in particular in terms of time, being actually able to have formal time at things like staff meetings and conferences to promote these sort of things and to um, make them as interactive uh, as possible. I think one of the other things which I, I, I'd say is that um, it's also important that there's clear use of language about what's meant by sustainability. What I see, and, and to some extent, reflected by the different approaches that Alex and I have, is that we have a, almost a dichotomous approach. On one hand, people who are very ecologically based. On the other hand, we have people who see sustainability in a very different way, a much more social way. And I think having common language is one of the points that Mike Johnson made is really important throughout the school so that everybody's on the same page about what's actually being meant and what's actually being taught. And so there's some consistency about how we deal with things. So I think those things are really important. But uh, I think the point that Alex stressed was, was really how important it is to empower people. And, you know, you just reminded me of uh, Dr. Michael Johnson, Frankfurt International School, said something on our last uh, webinar with the leadership panel was that sustainability is not a sacrifice. And sort of really uh, comprehending that phrase um, is transformative in itself. You know, we, we're looking at how can sustainability fit into a system? And I think if, some, if we can look at the last 30 or 40 years, we can see one thing. And that's that it, it really, sustainability really doesn't fit into our existing infrastructure. Um, you know, and I mean that on a countrywide global scale. Now, whether we have the capacity to fit it into an existing school system, um, I think remains to be seen. You know, there are schools that are becoming sustainable schools from their outset, that's their mission yes. from as they form. Now, whether schools, um, we, have to, we have to hope that they can, and we have to go through a sort of trial and error process, I think, moving forward, um, actually embrace sustainability throughout the curriculum and through their ethos. So sustainability is both walked and talked. Um, you know, it is a way forward. Yeah, and I, I actually love that turn of phrase as well, that it's not, sustainability is, is not a sacrifice. And it made me immediately think to the fact that we're doing meatless march here in our school. And when you reveal that information to students, that kind of that expression of, 
what no chicken or you know it just feels that you know so so that whole mind shift of uh, of changing the narrative and seeing it not to sacrifice that it is about decisions and it is about kind of you know changing your or building I guess empathy and understanding around uh, being more uh, being global citizens being you know part of the part of the solution if you like um and 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 you're right in the way that you've got the schools um when I, I worked in in Indonesia you've got the green school there in Bali which you kind of built you know built up from the, the from the bottom up on the sustainability um and you've got the new um the, the draft proposal coming from the uk soon which will insist on any new school buildings etc being carbon neutral so there is that you know there is there's definitely some some progress made uh, over time but that's not to say that we can sit back and watch that happen now we i think we've got to continue to be to be the agents and 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 engage with as you said the communities to kind of drive these these changes forward um, well, listen, uh, absolutely phenomenal uh, amount of uh, information, I think, in this in this brief show, uh, John and Alex, and I just want to thank you wholeheartedly, really, uh, for for spending the time with us here on uh, on Teachers Talk Radio. I just wondered if before before we uh, 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 ended the show there, if there were any sort of exciting projects that you're working on uh, at the moment that you'd like to share with us and also perhaps maybe give us some information about how people can engage with you and reach out. Okay, if I can just jump in quickly. Um, first of all, I think one of the things which we've been continuing to do is to record and publish, record our, our webinars and publish blogs on those. And we're actually having our next webinar on Sunday morning at 11.15 UK time, in which we have four outstanding educational entrepreneurs. And um, the invitation is still open, isn't it, Alex? It is still open. It's still open until Friday. Um, actually, no, it's still open, sorry, till Saturday, Saturday the 26th at midday. And that invitation is currently present on our LinkedIn profiles. Um, and the, the participants or prospective participants can just fill out the form and they will get a Zoom link um, in response. That sounds wonderful. And what I'll do there, we have show notes for this at the show. Okay. So everyone's got until tomorrow uh, to, to visit that link. I'll put it in the show notes as soon as the, the as soon as we're published. Um, and then people can follow that and hopefully join join you with that tomorrow. That sounds fascinating. Super. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, everybody. It's been an absolutely wonderful show today. I hope as well, if I, I hope to have convinced John and Alex also to come back again, because um, I am absolutely feel, feeling very buoyant as, as a result of that conversation, uh, continuing to, to kind of bang that sustainability drum. Um, we will see you next, or hear you next week. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.